So I'm joined today by a guy who I've known for quite some time. We we share a mentor in uh, Kevin Roberts, who um, I've already uh, done a podcast with. But um, Brian Ashton is the former coach of uh, Bath. I'll talk to him a bit about that. Ireland, England. And he's possibly the most inventive and innovative coach I've ever met. I mean, I, the only thing I've got against him, though, and as a Yorkshireman myself, is yeah. the fact that he's a Lancastrian through and through. Um, and, that, and that's probably the reason why I'm inventive and creative. <laughs> Much more than a Yorkshireman. You're most likely right there, mate. Um, <laughs> but, I, but one thing I can absolutely tell you is he's a rugby man. And, uh, and I think that, you know, if I, if I was to have a... Um, uh, on my headstone, uh, you know, David Moffat, rugby man, would do me. Um, a lot of people would would argue with that, but you can't argue with that when it comes to Brian Ashton. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much, David. Good to see you. Yeah, it is absolutely. Um, a bit about your early sort of coaching career. With you know, you you've coached some international sides with um, with success. Um, why did you get into coaching? Uh, I started teaching in 1969, and alongside the teaching, I was a history teacher, alongside the teaching, um, because I'd always played games and played to a relatively good level in a number of sports. Um, obviously, coaching schoolboys came more or less came with the territory when you were a teacher in those days. It was expected that you would give up time either before school or after school. Um, to help uh, develop players in whatever sports they were interested in. So I suppose it was 1969 that I started coaching. Uh, it was teaching stroke coaching in those days because there is a distinction. I, was, I thought I was pretty good at teaching, but I was, wasn't very good at coaching at all because I didn't really understand what it was until much later on. No doubt we'll come on to that. So 1969... So that takes us back, what was it, 50, 53 years been at it. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I could never be a coach because I've got the wrong personality to be a coach. Um, but I, I eventually became a referee and then an administrator. Um, but I do take my hat off to you for the longevity of having to um, sit in the grandstand and not really control what's going on. Although these days... The, the coaches seem to control every aspect of play. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, whether we'll enlarge on that, I'm not sure. It's a yeah. bit of a worry for me that because I came from the days when, well, in fact, funnily enough, in the early days, to be honest with you, I felt that was my role to be the man in charge, to be a command control sort of um, teacher stroke coach and to, um, to influence every little aspect of what went on off the field and, um, looking back now, sort of even more sort of strangely on the field as well, which, of course, very difficult to affect anything that goes on on the field once a whistle started. Um, so I've sort of been through the whole spectrum of command control to right in the early days to, to another way of doing it, as I did later on in my coaching career. Um and you, you know, I, I believe one of your great strengths is your man management skills, because um, I've seen those firsthand. And um, 
I think uh, as a coach, that's one of the one of the attributes that you've really got to nail down. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's quite interesting that you say that because I think um, for a number of reasons, and largely because of people I've met, and Kevin Roberts, who you mentioned earlier, being one of them, I sort of switched my view of um, being looked upon as a coach to to being a conciliary. Oh, yes. um, yeah. <laughs> which, yeah, which probably explains um, the comment you made about uh, my man management skills because I feel as I, I, I'm an advisor um, to, to be able to help players and to help other coaches um, improve if possible. Um, but I'm there, A, to help them if they want me to, and B, to sort of... Um, offer advice if I feel it's needed at any given time. And if it's not needed, then I will stay sort of in the background. I think you probably know that uh, Kevin's uh, deputy, Richard Heitner, yes. yeah. wrote a book, Conciliary, Leading from the Shadows. Um, and I think that, that probably sums up my approach to coaching, to be honest with you. Well, I've not, I've not actually, I'm going to, I'm going to track that book down and, um, and I'll have a read of it because um I'm always keen to learn new stuff. We spoke before before coming on air a little bit about um, about Bath and mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that you I think you had a couple of stints coaching at Bath from memory. Um, yeah, I, I went down to teach. I was my first stint was in the amateur days. Went down to teach in the West Country, um, about thirty miles from Bath in 1987. I'd actually been my first international gig. I'd been as assistant coach to with England to New Zealand in '85. Right. And quite quite a few about five or six Bath players on that tour. Um, when they found out I was down in the West Country, then they sort of very kindly invited me to join their coaching staff. And um, so I had a, a very happy time there from 1988, I think it was, until '96. Yeah. Um, and and who were you with there at Bath? Again, well, Jack then, Rowell was the oh, head Jack coach. Jack Rowell, yeah. Well, Jack was the head coach. He'd sort of started the the revolution, or evolution, as he would call it, and I sort of came in on the back of it. I sort of piggybacked on that. And um, then he left to join England, I think it was in 1993, 94, and I took over as head coach Yeah. from there. Um, so, so what do you make... Was, yeah. Yeah, so but, what do you make of Bath... Um, this season then? Well, if I look back to the Bath side that I was involved with and the way that Bath played the game in those days, and, 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 and I understand that it was totally different in those days. It was, a, it was an amateur game compared to a professional game and all that that brings with it. But I honestly think it's, it's lost its DNA of how to play the game, um, which is a great shame. Um, and certainly in the last three or four years, I think given, the, if you look at the talent that's available to them, um, you, could, you can only say that they've underachieved quite dramatically. Um, and it, it's very difficult now <clears throat> to watch them play and, and try to work out if there is such a thing as a style of play, is to work out what that style of play is. Um, yeah. it, it seems to be, I, I'd almost describe it as corporate rugby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Play, play by numbers and 
playing a certain way. If it doesn't work, then they keep banging their heads against a brick wall, believing that eventually it will. I mean, and I, yeah, I look, I, I call it McDonald's rugby uh, because no matter where you go up your part of the world down here, if you go into McDonald's, it all looks the same, tastes the same and yeah. comes out of the yeah. same package. And that's yeah. what rugby is looking like around the world. You know, no matter where you go, everybody is trying to play the same way. And, and I think it's, um, uh, I think it's a shame to be perfectly honest with you, but you know, I, I refer to a lot of it as bash and kick. I got into trouble once before I ran the NRL calling the rugby league five tackles kick, which it is, but yeah. that, but I never thought I'd be describing rugby as bash and kick. And, 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 and all too often it might, I mean, it might not happen at club level as you go down the grades, but certainly at the very visible level, that's what it seems to me to have become. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it, it is, it's, it's a really interesting thing that the way things have developed uh, I, I I often try to look at it, when I watch teams play try to think what is the attacking mindset of these players what is the attacking mindset of the organization have they got an attacking mindset or are they just playing things like territory possession um, system structures or is the mindset right we're going to go out and we're going to play to win by scoring tries so that's our mindset. So we start with that. So that's our dream. What do we need to do to make sure that that happens? Then all the detail is filled in below that. Yeah. It was interesting. I was in, um, I mean, obviously I've got the IRANS background on. I've, I've worked with IRANS now since 2009 on a yearly basis. And I was in IRANS uh, in New Zealand, sorry, four or five years ago. Mike Cron, who, who most people certainly in your part of the world, will know very well. He was an ex-All Blacks coach, did, did a remarkable number of test matches, I think, over a long period of time. And he asked the question on one of the coach, coach courses that I was facilitating. He said, what's the purpose of a scrum and line-out? Now, without embarrassing anybody by name, there were coaches from all over the world and some from the Northern Hemisphere and a couple from South Africa sort of licked the lips at this and sort of went into great detail about physical dominance, winning penalties, mental dominance, wheeling away, this, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> he eventually, he, he sat there very patiently and listened. He said, the object is, and I won't use the exact phrase because it might not be appropriate if any ladies are watching this, he said, it's to score tries. Yeah. A scrum in a line-out is to score tries. Yeah. Irrespective of whether it's your ball or their ball, the object is to score tries. And I, you know, and I was so excited to hear something like that because I'd promoted for some time in England that uh, the object of an attacking team was to win by scoring tries, full stop. Yeah. And so, was, yeah. And so let's just, work away. Let's yeah, work yeah, away. no, I agree with that. I mean, so... Um, I, I mean, this might be a difficult question for you to answer, um, given your history with England. But but what do you make of the England so-called style of rugby at the moment? It hasn't worked for them in the Six Nations for the last two years. And, mm. and I mean, whilst they did get to the final of the uh, Rugby World Cup 2019, they were comprehensively outplayed by the box. Yeah. Where, where do you think they're at at the moment? Because, you know, it's always, I mean, and I can understand people being positive and everybody's saying, well, you know, it's all looking good, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. 
I mean, the, the climate at the moment is, and, I, and I, I, you probably know him as well, and I know Eddie Jones very well, and I've got a massive amount of respect for him as a coach because he's achieved a great deal in his coaching career. Um, but again, going back to something I mentioned earlier, I find it very difficult at the moment to decipher any real style of play. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the claim is that we're in transition. And I, I can sort of understand that. Some of the older players are either not being selected or being injured. Some younger players have come in. But even so, you would, you would expect to see some sort of style of play, whatever it might be. Um, I mean, initially, I think Eddie went with the, um, with the archetypal England style of play, um, having a very strong forward pack, a good kicking game, a very strong defence, etc., and a very pressurised game, and it served the game you highlighted earlier on, the 2019 semi-final against the All Blacks. They effectively pressurised the All Blacks out of the game. Although, having said that, I thought the All Blacks' approach to that game was pretty naive, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but, um, but since then, it's sort of... I don't know, it's just, it's just been difficult to, to try to work out how they're actually trying to play that. If... If this is a massive double bluff, and they're trying to hide how they want to play. <laughs> you never know with Eddie. <laughs> no, you don't. No, there's yeah. that, um, no. Um, now I, I read in the I read somewhere today that um, uh, the the uh, what's the name of the uh, current CEO of um, England Rugby? Bill Sweeney. Oh, Bill Sweeney. He he yeah. said that that they his preferences for uh, uh, the next coach of England after Eddie leaves after the next world cup will be English. And I absolutely applaud that. You know, Mm -hmm. I think you've got some really good coaches in England. So why spend money on a a New Zealander or, you know, a coach like that when, you know, all these coaches are bashing away week after week in a very, very tough competition. And then they say, well, you know, that's all very well and good. But when the big prize comes along, you know, we're not being looked at. And I, and I, I just think and I hope that England appoints an, an Englishman yeah. or, or to coach. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with that. I can, I can understand to some extent. I think um, Eddie was available in 2015. Yep. 2016, England have been the first ever side never to qualify from the group stages when hosting a World Cup. And there were obviously there were lots of reasons why that happened. And I think they just looked for a big personality and a big name and someone who'd been there and done it to to turn things around. Um, And and that's what happened. But certainly, I think, you know, by and large, Certainly, we, we've probably got enough English coaches now coming through the system who uh, who will put their hand up and say, look, you know, I can I could probably do a decent job with England. The, the only thing that concerns me, to be honest, is I think in the same at the same time, they talked about developing an English style of play. Mm. Uh, if the English style of play is the one I referred to earlier of having a big pack playing territory possession, a kicking number 10, which at the moment they haven't got, although he's kicked a hell of a lot more than he normally does for his club in the last five games, then I'm not all that convinced that at the top of the world, 
um, we got the players good enough to to win world trophies or win big competitions playing like that. Yeah, that. you've most likely got the players. I mean, you talked about yeah. this young Harlequin fly half yeah. Um, yeah. as as yeah, Marcus. Uh, um, as as one of those, but they, he's got to be unleashed. He's got to, you know. And, and this is one of the big arguments I have about Welsh rugby. I mean, they've had the Welshness coached out of them, and you know better than me what yeah, yeah. what Welsh rugby can still be, you know. And so instead of this McDonald's rugby, the French are actually starting to play a bit like the French again. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. the Irish. Well, you know, they've got a well, they've got a potentially. The next England coaching team over there, haven't they? Really? Um, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. You know. I mean, the, the two sides that really impressed in the Six Nations up here this year have been uh, the two you just mentioned, France and Ireland. France, because they've got a multifaceted game mm. and they've got players who can play like that. Uh, and Ireland, because they, they play a game that's largely based, I think, and I know Andy Farrell and Mike Cat won't mind me saying this. On, on the Leinster model, because a lot of the Leinster players are actually starters in the Irish 15. Yes. Uh, and they play a very direct sort of game um, based on speed of ball and, uh, and, and numbers around the ball to win the ball very quickly. And then it's all directed, orchestrated by Johnny Sexton at 10, um, who obviously is, is someone who's used to playing that style of rugby. Yeah. Uh, and it's been very effective this year. So they've sort of created a bit of a gap. They're sort of division one of six nations, if you, if you wish. Uh, and there's a bit of gap, to be honest, between those two and, and the rest of the teams that play in the six nations at the moment. What do you make, talking about six nations, what do you make of the suggestion that, that Italy should be booted and they should be replaced by South Africa? <laughs> it's a funny time to ask that question because it's just been last year's champions. <laughs> <laughs> Worlds in Cardiff and probably won the game with the try the tournament at the end. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's, uh, I think there's no doubt about it. If you, if you look at Italy, subtle big time. I mean, they came it, it just a bit of a historical perspective on this. They were inviting the Six Nations around to the year 2000. They'd had a very successful second half of the 1990s. As soon as they were invited into the 2000s, the majority of those players retired. Mm. But taking them there weren't there to start the 2006 Nations, so they struggled right from the very start, and they've never really recovered from that, I don't think. Um, but it, people tell me that there there are signs of a of an improvement right through the Italian game. I still think domestically the game's nowhere near where it should be, and probably never will be because of the influence of football over there. But I um, just just on that point though, I think. Yeah. Italy should be in the French setup, you know. They, I mean, they're right next door to each other. So France yeah. should open its arms to Italy and say, "Okay, you can come in," you know, yeah. and 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 we'll. And if they were to do that, their rugby would improve immensely, in my view. I mean, it's just... well, I'm not, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, at the moment, the two sides that play, uh, Benetton and the Zebra side, playing the what is it? The URC is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a mix of all the Celtic nations, South African provinces, or yeah, super rugby teams, etc. Um, but I think you're right to be exposed week in, week out um, to French rugby, but certainly at the level below international rugby, could, would do nothing but help them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, we, I mean, I know rugby is dealing with some really big issues at the moment, but um, you've been involved right from the beginning, about two years ago, in developing an, an alternative form of rugby, which is, um, which is based on a lot of the things that, uh, that you would like to see happen. It's not an attempt to take over from 15s or replace sevens or anything like that, but it's, it's a game we now call 11s rugby. And, and you've been very instrumental in developing that to the point where it's now currently being considered by world rugby uh, as to perhaps where it may or may not fit into the overall scheme of things. Um, can you just explain what piqued your interest in, in being involved with a, gr a group of people, obviously myself included, who, who are passionate about the game and would like to, you know, to see some, some, some modifications? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you, you actually mentioned one of the reasons right at the very start about, um, I can't remember how you phrased it now. Innovative. Yeah, McDonald's rugby. Oh, McDonald's yeah. rugby, yeah. That's right, yeah. And uh, there's a real there was a real element of that around the world. Um, obviously, there were a couple of sides who probably didn't fit into that mold, but a lot of them did and still do, uh, you know, and I could highlight, if we had, we we're doing video, lots of instances where you see teams play, so, well, that team does that, this team does that, this team does that, they all do the same sort of thing yeah. at certain times in the game. Um, so I think that was one thing because the, the game for me had become less interesting than it used to be. Um, and the, the, other, the other thing that, that really got my interest was it was sort of, it was directly between sevens and fifteens in terms of numbers. But I remember when I was coaching at Bath and I can't remember when it was, I think it was about 1994, 95, uh, suddenly someone had the idea of running a tennis tournament as a sort of a pre-season tournament yeah. with tennis side. And of course, we've been sort of working really hard at Bath on developing multi-skilled players. So we embrace it. We won the tournament. They went to, into Wales and played, I think it was the Worthington Tens in Wales, sponsored by Worthington Beers. And we won that as well, much to the disgust of the Welshmen, because we were the only English team invited. <laughs> um, and I thought then, wow, this is fantastic. This is absolutely perfect, bridging the gap between the seven-a-side game and the 15-a-side game because it had elements of both, but it had all the competitiveness, especially in terms of contest for possession, mm. that the 15-a-side game had. And it just disappeared because no one was interested. No. No, I mean, my view is that the, the game has to evolve and it's evolved and, you know, to the point where it is now. But we should, if you take a look at cricket, for example, there where they've got multiple um, variations yeah. of their game, I believe not because we've been involved in developing this, but the, the 11s could be the same sort of thing. I mean, it, you know, just quickly for the viewers and listeners, it's 11 players a team and this you were very instrumental in rethinking the the amount of time played um, in in this game, and it's played over eleven minute quarters, so it's forty four minutes of playing time. Because of the various rules um, uh, that we have, um, the ball in play time is going to be pretty much, you know, forty odd minutes, which is going to be yeah. more than currently at fifteen. So, yeah. I mean, it it. it 
and it is, I don't say it's a game for everyone, but it is a game for anyone, you know, whether you're, no matter the age, the sex, the, the body type, especially because it's going to cater for all body types and it's going to be, it's going to be simpler to play. Yeah. It's going to be faster to play, but I also think it's going to be safer. Yeah, absolutely. I think all those descriptions are absolutely correct. And it's, it's funny, actually, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, for 20 odd years, I was a school teacher. Yeah. And, and often we played uh, things like 12 aside because we'd only got 24 players in our, on our games afternoon. Yeah. So, I mean, th these things informally have probably been done around the world before. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, it, and I know from my school teaching days that you can modify the rules that we've got now. Yeah. As I've done it, it's, it during school time and to make it more enjoyable and a, and, a, and a free game for the players to play. Yeah. You know, you've taken that one, well, I was going to say one step further, you've taken it more than one step further and now introduced, you know, a, a formalized sort of game, 11 aside, which I, when I look at it, I think, wow, that's the sort of game that I would have loved to play in. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and, and because it's, um, there are fewer numbers, and in this day and age where clubs are struggling for numbers, where schools are struggling for numbers, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, um, you know, it would have an attraction there as well. But, but as I said, you know, um, with your help, uh, World Rugby uh, are looking at it, and hopefully they will see some merit in it um, because um, there's been a lot of work put in by people like yourself and Robbie Deans and, you know, and a, and a whole bunch of ex-international referees and 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 administrators. So, yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll see where it goes. Brian, just um, uh, just to finish off, what what would you like? What would you know if you had your druthers? What would you like to see in rugby? If I had, sorry. If you'd had your druthers, I'd rather see this or I'd rather see that. Your druthers. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to see a game where the, the the thing you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, where ball in play, yeah, is more than it is now. I mean, it annoys me intensely that when we have scrums that are reset and this, that, and the other, that the clock's still ticking, so that counts as ball in play when there's nothing happening. Yeah, so, you know, when people say, right, ball in play for this game is thirty six minutes, you can probably take ten minutes off. Um, for reset scrums, and actually, when the ball was kicked off the field before the line out is formed and the ball is thrown in because the clock still ticks then. Yeah. And so actually we, you, you ain't getting much for your dollar if you're watching 26 minutes rugby. Yeah. You know, these professional players training all week to play what? 26 minutes rugby or in the case of a front row forward. 13 minutes. <laughs> yeah, two thirds of a game. So let's say they play 20 minutes rugby. Yeah. You know, and get paid big bucks to do it. So yeah. That, that just doesn't seem right to me. And that's one of the benefits, obviously, of the 11 aside thing, where ball is going to be in play for more than 40 minutes. So I think that's one thing. The same thing is, I think um, I'd, I'd like to see more innovation in the game. Um, I, I, the, there are players who must be bursting to to get out of this sort of straight jacket sometimes that seem to be they seem to be trapped in. Yeah, uh, I understand this. Well, I, I sort of half understand this argument about space being at a premium. And I know players have got bigger, stronger and faster. And there was an interesting comment from Dan Carter, not, not around space. 
but he's saying that um, you've 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 still got to have the fun element in the game. Otherwise, you know, what's the point in playing it? Yeah, um, that's at the professional level as well. But the space element is one that fascinates me because um, probably a lot of rugby geeks might know, but some might not. That if you that the space on a full size pitch plus in goal areas of ten meters each end is eight thousand four hundred square meters. But any one time, only 31 square metres, that's 15 players on each team and a referee are occupied. So that, <laughs> if my maths are correct, 8,369 uh, square metres empty. Yeah. So when people say to me, there's no space, I just point out that sort of mathematical fact and just, <laughs> just wait for the reply. Now, I know that space moves and changes. Yeah, but sure. I, you know, that's one of the things is we need to, and what I'm leading on to is, uh, and you alluded to it, Tibor, about the Welshness being coached out of Welsh players. We need to work incredibly hard to teach players to be game intelligent. Um, my feeling is that that side of the game, I'm not all that convinced that current players are as intelligent as players who played in the past. Um, from from a game point of view, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think they they tend to play in systems and structures imposed by coaches. Um, they tend to play according to field position and not what they see around them, in front of them, or what how they feel the game's going. And I think that that game intelligence um, that a lot of a lot of players I know played with, I played against in the past, had because they when they were younger they played games. Full stop. Yeah. They just play rugby, they play games, they play rugby, they play football, they play cricket, they play basketball. And yeah. the only way to learn playing games is by playing games. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I'm similar to you. I've got a feeling that that's been sort of players have been inhibited from playing in a natural way. Yeah. Um, playing the way that they feel and play what they see in front of them. For example, if you see a four on two and you're five meters from your own line, then for me, that's try time. Yeah. Yeah. As ever, Brian, um, very instructive, very innovative, and still a man for his time, a rugby man. Um, and um, thank you very much for joining David Moffat here on the Moffcast. Um, I'm sure we'll do some more of these because I would like to explore a few more of the things that we've only just touched on specifically, perhaps we could do, do a podcast more on, on coaching um, because I'm fascinated by it. Um, and you've got so much to offer. Um, but mate, um, thank you very much indeed. I'll just, um, I'll, I'll now I'll edit this little bit out because I'm going to try and find it, how I can, my, my computer's playing up a bit, how I can um, stop the, uh, um, uh, I know I'm not to stop the video, David. Just, um, I just want to um, stop the recording.